All right, we're going to uh, continue down the Romans road, reading uh, and studying through Romans 6. How many of you read ahead? Raise them real high. Okay, we're increasing. Maybe by the last one, everybody will raise their hand. But this is, this is, I think, one of the most important chapters in the whole book. And it's hard to say that because every one of the chapters is crucial. But this is going to tell us how to walk it, how to walk out Christianity, which I've been talking about a lot on Sundays. How many of you can say it's, it's, it's one thing to get saved, it's another thing to live it? Amen. amen. I always get a good amen on that. Amen? Yeah. So let, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God tonight. And we pray that as we go through Romans, that you will bless this. That, Lord, you'll open our understanding, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Lord, we're hungry and thirsty for the word of God. Your word is like honey to our soul. And, Lord, we pray, feed us tonight. And help us to understand the walk that we've been called to. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody say with me, I receive divine illumination. Amen. Tell your neighbors, good to see you tonight. You can be seated. Amen. 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 Well, I'll tell you, we had a, a, a great Sunday. Um, after the first service, we had a lot of people, several people, many people get saved. And I don't know if the lady is here tonight, and I would never point anybody out in particular, but one lady uh, was so touched to get saved, just weeping and crying out to God for repentance and, and for forgiveness. And, and, and I just, before my eyes, I saw the Holy Spirit just go into her and her, her, her face change and her countenance change. And I never, no matter how many times I see it, I never get tired of it. Amen. I never get bored with it because I'm watching the greatest miracle available to mankind happen right in front of me. Amen. All right. As usual, we're going to go to the very first page and look at our little acronym here, Romans, on the very first page. Just open it up and you'll see Romans. And I want us just to say together, R, the cross. O, the ditch. And what's the ditch? Where Paul is letting us know you're all in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. M, the road. And that is God giving us our way out. Amen. And we've been on that. That's through chapter five, and we finished that last time. Now, tonight we're coming to A, and what is A? The plan. What's the plan? The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives uh, uh, by Christ's power within us, which I've been preaching on on Sundays. How do you live it out? You live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and do N. What's N? The world. God makes his name great by spreading his grace to the whole world. Uh, chapters 9 through 11 is going to show us God's plan for the entire planet. And finally, S is what? The kingdom. And that's 12 through 16. And God's name is glorified by his people living out righteous lives. And so, again, he gets very practical with us. So, tonight, we're going to begin with chapter 6. So, if you're there, say amen. amen. So, look what the heading is. Dead to sin alive in Christ. What we're going to share tonight, I'm going to tell you as a pastor of many years, most Christians never come to understand this. Most Christians I've ever pastored never come to, or that I've ever met or known 
ever come to really understand this because it's not easy to understand um, because you've got to take it at face value. And at face value, uh, he's making some heavy T-bone steak theological statements like you are dead to sin. That's not metaphorical. He's not, he's not embellishing to make a point. It's a fact. And you're alive in Christ. How many people ever really wake up convinced that they're dead to sin? Really? Come on. So let's dive in. Now, last time in chapter five, Paul, the apostle laid out the benefits of justification, how God uses suffering in building character. He uses suffering to build character. So God never wastes a pain. And the superiority of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, as opposed to the first Adam, who was Adam. Adam was the first Adam, and he's the one that put us all where we need to be in a church, being healed and saved, because he ate of the forbidden fruit. And being the head of the human race, the whole human race fell with him. But now the second Adam is Jesus Christ. We looked at that last time. Now, in chapter 6, Paul begins explaining how those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are to, what everyone, walk out their new relationship with God. And that's what I mean when I say it's one thing to get saved, it's another thing to live it out, to walk it out. Now, the subject of growth into spiritual maturity is the subject of chapters 6 through 8. So in the next three chapters, we're going to learn how to grow into spiritual maturity. How many of you want that? Amen. Amen. How many of you are frustrated that you haven't grown quicker than you had hoped? I know. I'm, yeah. Amen. Now, um, now we're going to see that this process of spiritual growth is called sanctification. So we have justification and then we have sanctification. All right. Now, sanctification is the lifelong process. It takes your whole life of transformation into the likeness of Christ. All right, that's sanctification. It's the lifelong process. However long God leaves you on this planet, as a believer, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, he is working on your sanctification. Every day, you and I are on the potter's wheel. Every day. You may not feel it. You may not sense it. But you're there. And God is molding you and me, shaping us, carving us into the image of Christ. Please hear me on this. Spiritual maturity is not measured by how many gifts you have. Spiritual maturity is measured by how much fruit has grown in your life. Because gifts are sown. Fruit is grown. Right? I wish fruit was sown. I wish patience could just be dropped on me. You know, out of heaven, but it's not, it's grown. How's it grown? By God allowing me into certain situations that require patience. If I don't have to exercise patience, how am I ever going to learn patience? All right. So justification is the gift that happens at the moment of our conversion to Christ. Sanctification is the process that takes place during our life on earth. But then he says, we're also glorified. Every believer's testimony begins with justification, proceeds with sanctification, and ends in glorification. 
When does glorification happen? When Jesus comes back. All right. So justification is the gift that comes to us the moment we're saved. But sanctification is not a gift. It's a process uh, that takes place during our entire life on earth. Glorification is the result of the return of Jesus Christ and the glorification of our earthly bodies to be like his. All right? So everybody say justified, sanctified, glorified. Now with chapter six, we've got the beginning of practical how to live it out Christianity. Here's how you do it. First of all, dead to sin, alive to Christ. First 14 verses. Let's look at it. Verse one, Paul again deals with false teachers who claimed we should keep on sinning that God's grace might, may abound. Can you believe somebody was teaching that? Yeah. If you want grace to abound, just keep on sinning. If you want to experience more grace, just, just, just go sin real good. Live a life of sin. So grace can abound. That sounds wacko to us, but it was gaining some cred back then. Uh, but there's a lot of teachers out there right now that I listen to and I go, I can't believe anybody is following that, but they do. Amen. Now look what he says in verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So grace may increase. This is absurd. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to strike a death blow to this argument with a huge life altering truth. Here it is. By no means do we sin so grace can abound more. Here's the truth. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That means practice it, live it as your lifestyle. How can we as Christians have a sinful lifestyle? I mean, not messing up here and there where you got to say, I shouldn't have said that or thought that or, or done that or had that attitude. That was wrong. Lord, forgive me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about living a sinful lifestyle. He's saying, how can we live out a sinful lifestyle if we've died to sin? Dead. If we're dead to sin, are we? You say, Pastor, I sure don't feel dead to sin. Right? Let's be honest. How many of you feel dead to sin? There. (laughs) Not one person. Not one person. Lord, help me. Not one person. But you know what? You know why? Because we don't feel dead to sin. We feel like sin's right there. We feel like sin is easy. We feel like sin is always tailing us, stalking us right on our heels. It's easy to sin, right? It's easy to mess up. So we don't feel dead to sin, but I want you to understand the same Greek word translated into died. We died to sin is found in the story of Lazarus in John 11, where it says, therefore, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have what everyone died. Same Greek word is used to say We died to sin. It means dead. It means corpse. It means grave. It means gone, dead. Not almost dead, kind of dead, a little bit dead, mostly dead. Dead. So it's not figurative speech. Paul is saying, you as a Christian have died totally to sin. Now stay with me, because I know you don't feel like this, and it doesn't seem true, but let's, let's see what he says. Nothing can be more unresponsive than a dead person. Amen? 
You can't talk to a dead person. Dead person can't move, can't talk, can't hear, can't see, nothing, right? A corpse can't be commanded or, or kicked or made to respond in any way because the corpse is dead. Likewise, God reckons the believer to be just that dead to the promptings of sin. That's why I call this T-bone steak real red meat theology. This is not the easy stuff. This is red meat. This is we're in a, a steakhouse and we're getting the really one of the deep theological truths that we're all to understand. And I tell you again, most Christians don't. They may know it says this, but they don't believe it. They may know it says this, but they never really thought it through. He's telling me something that I'm to reckon to be true. All right? Paul compares the Christian's death to sin to water baptism. He says in verses three and four, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you know that? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. Now the word baptism is used elsewhere in the Greek language of a blacksmith who puts a piece of hot iron in water to temper it. We've all seen it on Western shows. Blacksmith has got something red hot in the fire. He takes it out and he puts it into the water and it sizzles and steams. And whatever was red hot is completely immersed in the water. That's baptism. It's also of Greek soldiers who place the points of their swords into a bowl of blood before a battle. Baptism means total immersion. It's not sprinkling. It's total immersion. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo. Now, you want to say when you look at it, the transliterator word like baptizo, but it's a DZ sound, like a B. So everybody say baptizo. There, now you, you, that's what you got coming on Wednesday night. You learned a Greek word. There you go. Baptizo. But it's the act of placing a person or a thing into a new environment or into union with someone else so as to alter its relationship to its previous environment or condition. Let me put it this way. It means you are being totally immersed into a brand new context in life. I mean, salvation, folks, is radical. What, if any man be in Christ, he's a, he's a brand new creation. That's radical. You are transformed. You're, you're new. All things have become new. The old has passed away. All has become new. How much has become new? All has become new. Salvation is a radical transformation. It's the most radical, incredible miracle that can happen to any human being on earth is to be saved. To be born again. Because when you're born again, you're transformed. You're radically changed. All right? So the believer has been placed into a living, vital union with Christ and into a totally new environment. What's the new environment? Everybody say it with me. The kingdom of God. We are now members of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We were delivered from the kingdom of Satan and we have been translated into the kingdom of God. 
We switched kingdoms. We went from death to life, lost to found, blind to sight, kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God's dear son. We have been radically transformed. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand for what he's done for us? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Now, Every born-again child of God has experienced three baptisms, and every Christian should understand this. The first baptism is water baptism. Water baptism is that act of obedience that baptizes us into Christ, in particular, his death, burial, and resurrection. When I baptize or we baptize out there, I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him by baptism into his death, raised to walk in a brand new life. Okay? Buried with Jesus by baptism into his death. When you go down, you are illustrating and representing and signifying and picturing Jesus going into the grave. And when you come out, you are illustrating Jesus being raised from the dead And you too have been raised from the dead, the spiritual dead, to live a new life, to walk in newness of life. Amen? That's why everybody needs to be water baptized. Does it save you? No. But it is an act of obedience, the first act of obedience after you're saved. It's the number one thing every new believer ought to immediately try to do. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a command of Christ. Why do I need to be water baptized? Because he told you to. He told me to. Amen? Now, water baptism is that act of obedience that baptizes into his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Romans 6, 4-5. We were buried, therefore, with him. By the baptism into death. Did you catch that, everybody? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so we too might habitually live and behave in newness of life. Jesus got up from the dead, and we have been raised from the spiritual dead. Before we were saved, we were dead. Necros. Same Greek word. Dead in trespasses and sins. But when we got saved, We were raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. And it didn't cost you a dime. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Amen. When baptized in water, we are identifying with Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. Proclaiming that we have died to sin. Testifying to the world that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. So we are being raised from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. Water baptism conveys to the world a change within the believer that is as radical as Jesus' death and resurrection. (laughs) Amen. Say with me, I'm radically saved. You are radically saved. You can't get any more radical than getting saved. Amen. The second baptism is baptism into the Holy Spirit. 
So we're baptized in water, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Speaking of Jesus, John the Baptist said in John 1, verse 33, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended back into heaven, Acts chapter one, verse four, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you in water. He immersed you in water. But in a few days, you will be immersed, baptized, plunged into the Holy Spirit. That's what I've been preaching on on Sundays. Amen? So thankful for the Holy Spirit of God. And on the day of Pentecost, the 120 believers in the upper room were totally immersed in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I ask this all the time, but how many of you really are thankful for the Holy Spirit of God? Oh my. Where would we be without the helper? Amen. So baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit. The third baptism for every child of God is baptism into the body of Christ, the church. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized. How did it happen? Everybody say it with me. By one spirit. What he baptized us into? One body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Okay? So we were baptized into the body of Christ. That means immersed in. That means you were placed and I was placed in the body of Christ. This is my family. Tonight, on uh, To Every Man and Answer, the call-in uh, program that I'm on on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights from 5 to 6 Central Time, we got a call about Freemasonry. And they want to know about Freemasonry and should I as a Christian become a Freemason? And they went into all this. And I don't know a lot about Freemasonry, but I do know it's a secret society. And if you're in Freemasonry, listen carefully to me, just hear me out. You're in a secret society where you take oaths that I think don't line up with scripture. You believe in universalism. Everybody is saved. Everybody's a child of God. Um, nobody's going to go to hell. Universalism. Uh, you, you involve yourself in idolatry. There's a lot of things that go on in Freemasonry. But, but I said to this woman who called, I said, but here's the deal. Why would I need a secret society when I've got my church family? Right? I mean, this is my society and it ain't secret. Right? It's not behind closed doors and not we're off in the dark in some corner talking about weird things. No, this is the body of Christ. And I was baptized into it, immersed into it. And, and, and so were you. So these are your folks, and that's why we say, you know, we needed to break away during COVID for a time, but now we're meeting again. And if you can possibly be here, you should be here because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We ought to be encouraging one another and, and praying for one another and, and listening to one another and helping one another because we have all been baptized into the same body of believers worldwide. Anywhere I go, if I go to China, Russia, uh, Korea, it doesn't matter. When I find brethren, they're my family. They're my society. 
Amen? If you don't believe in the gifts, I can sit down and listen. As long as we can agree on the essentials, the blood, the one wayness of Jesus Christ, heaven, hell, the Bible is the word of God, those kinds of things. I don't worry about the non-essentials. I'll meet you for lunch. I'll meet you for breakfast. I'll meet you for coffee. Even if you're an atheist, I'll meet you for coffee. But um, I'll meet you and fellowship with you because our fellowship is based on the blood and, and the fact that God baptized us into the body of believers together. Okay. Amen. So we're baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit and baptized in the body of Christ. Now, through our identification with Christ in water baptism, here we're going back to water baptism just for a moment. God has broken sin stronghold in our lives. Listen to what Paul says, verse six, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Did you catch that, everybody? You know the old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Let me ask you, were you? The correct answer is yes, you were. How were you there? Your old man, the old sin nature, was crucified with Christ. Your old man was hanging there with him. Do you get it? This is red meat theology. Your old man was crucified on the cross with Christ. He did away with the sin nature. He killed it. Why did he do it? That we would no longer be enslaved to it. Have to do what it says. In every unsaved person, there's but one nature. If you're unsaved, you have one nature. It's the fallen nature. And there's no way you can think yourself out of it. You've got one nature. It's fallen. It fell with Adam. But with every Christian, there's two natures. The fallen nature, which was judicially put to death when Jesus died and his new regenerate nature, which was secured for us by Jesus' resurrection. So there's two natures in every true born-again Christian, that old Adam nature and the brand new nature. Now the fallen nature is called the old man, the old man. That's the fallen nature, the old man. And it occurs elsewhere in Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9. You can look those up. But Paul tells us to lay aside the old man. Put aside the old man. Don't do anything the old man tells you to do. Okay? Now, it means that the man of the old corrupt human nature, the inborn tendency towards evil, is in all men. It's in all men. Now, positionally, in the reckoning of God, the old man is crucified with Christ. As far as God is concerned, your old man and mine was crucified with Christ. That's how God sees it. And when I say the word positional, that's what I mean. Positionally, God sees our old man hanging on the cross with Jesus. And you know what? He, he's not supposed to come down. 
He's crucified with Christ. And anything on a cross, everybody, dies. You don't live on a cross. You die on a cross. The old man is crucified, killed, died, dead by the sovereign act of God. That old sin nature was killed. Okay? So the believer is exhorted to make this good in experience, reckoning it to be so by putting off the old man and putting on the new. Put on the new man. Created in Christ Jesus, Paul says. One of Paul's favorite phrases, he used it all the time. Put on the new man, put off the old man. Put on the new nature, put off the old nature. Put on love, put off uh, negative, destructive emotions. Put on love. He was always telling you to put on and put off. Okay? Let me delve deeper into this thing of positional experiential. We've got to understand this. There's two kinds of truth in scripture. Never forget this. It'll help you. It'll set you free. The Bible presents two levels of truth to every believer, positional and experiential. Now, what's positional truth? Positional truth is that which God has accomplished for us once for all in Christ. Positional truth is what is done in God's mind. Are you in heaven in God's mind? Yes, you are. Are you perfected in Christ in God's mind? Yes. Are you sinless in God's mind? Yes. But how many of you still sin some? Tell the truth, right? But in God's mind, okay? In God's mind, let's, now, let me go into like experiential. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get this tonight. So that's positional truth. What is, in, what is true in God's mind? What is done in God's mind? Experiential truth is that truth which is worked out experientially in our life while alive on earth is what we actually experience living in time and space. Let me give you an example. How many of you can say, I don't love perfectly, but I've got a more loving nature than I had five years ago? So you're growing in love. How about patience? I'm still not perfect in patience, Pastor, but I'm more patient than I used to be. Come on. All right. So what is that? That's your experiential truth. You are experiencing in time and space on earth the truth of growing in, in uh, God, growing in Christ, bearing spiritual fruit, becoming more loving, more patient, more kind, more gentle. Your faith growing and building. All of these are what we experience in real time, in time and space. But positionally, we're perfected as far as God's concerned. Are you with me? For instance, the Bible declares in Ephesians 2, 6 that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Well, it doesn't look like that to me. You're sitting right here in TPC sanctuary. You're seated in that chair. You're not seated in Christ, but are you? As far as God's concerned, positionally, you're already there. That just gave me a Holy Ghost bump or two. Because as far as God's concerned, I'm already there. Okay? 
We're not there yet experientially, yet positionally. God already reckons it done. Now, another example is found in Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Who he called, these he also justified. And who he justified, these he also glorified. But watch this. That's four things that God has done for us. But the first three, predestined, called, and justified have already happened to every believer experientially. Everybody in here, if you're a believer, you've already been justified, called, and sanctified. He's already, it's already done. But guess what? We haven't been glorified yet because when are we going to be glorified? When we go to heaven. But God says it like it's already done. It's already done. Amen. Amen. Paul is instructing us by the Holy Spirit to lay hold of the positional truth that our old man was crucified with Christ and is dead. Death by crucifixion could never be self-inflicted. You can't hang yourself on a cross. Someone else had to do the crucifying, right? At Calvary, God has dealt with the question of self as well as the question of sin by himself putting us to death with Christ. God crucified our old man on the cross with Christ. You have nobody in history committing suicide by a cross. Somebody has to put you there. And the message is God put you there and me there. Our old man was crucified by God with Christ. But it gets better. God has also broken sin's stranglehold on our life. Verse 6. Knowing this, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we would no longer serve sin. Now, the body of sin, watch this carefully, everybody. The body of sin refers to the instrument for carrying out sin's orders. The old man is the one that says, do it. And the body of sin carries it out. Watch this. The old man says, gossip about that person. Well, you got to have a mouth to do that, don't you? So the old man says, gossip. The body of sin says, you got it. And you start talking. The old man says, go get drunk. You, you, you're having a tough time in life. You, you deserve a break today. Go to the bar, get drunk. But your body has to cooperate. And your body is the body of sin. It becomes the instrument of sin. Okay, so there's a difference. The old man is the one that says do it because the old man is the fallen nature and all the old man ever wants to do is sin. The body of sin says, I will obey the old man and go do it. And you got to put feet to it, a mouth to it, eyes to it, ears to it, thoughts to it. You got to obey it. Okay, but watch this now. Obviously, the body does not feel dead to sin, but that is where positional truth comes in. God says it is dead, and we're to reckon it so. <laughs> we're in Texas. Let's say it. I reckon. <laughs> right? As salvation does not depend on how we feel, neither does our day-to-day -day walk. I don't always, I mean, do you always feel just overwhelmingly saved? 
How many, how many of you have days where you feel kind of dry? Tell the truth, a little bit dry and stressed out on edge, right? But that doesn't mean you're not saved because you don't feel it. Okay. And just because you don't feel dead to sin doesn't mean it's not true. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. In the Christian life, feelings are secondary to truth. Listen to me, church. Not our culture. In our culture, feelings first, truth second. If I feel it, it's true. But New Testament Christianity says, if it's true, then I feel it. It's number one. In other words, if I say, I'm saved. I don't care how I feel. I guarantee you the day is going to come. I feel saved again because truth precedes feeling. But our culture puts a premium on feeling and minimizes truth. And that's what's messing us up so bad. See, I feel that I'm another gender. No, no, come on. Follow me here. I feel I'm another gender. Well, uh, uh, earth to you. You're not, you're not, you are what you were born to be, but that's not the way I feel. Well, that doesn't make it true. Feelings don't make anything true. True makes something true. Come on, everybody. True makes something true. Truth stands there by itself and says, I don't care what you feel. I'm true. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. Doesn't matter what I feel about Jesus. I may feel like he's a fake, a phony, wasn't even real. That doesn't matter. Jesus says, I don't care what you feel. The truth is, I'm the truth. And I was truly there. And I'm truly at the right-hand side of the Father. So, So our culture is going insane by putting feeling above truth. Theological truth, philosophical truth, uh, physiological truth, you name the kind of truth. I don't, scientific truth. We're telling little kids, if you, if you as a boy feel like you're a girl, then we will start addressing you by female pronouns because if you feel it, it's true. And I say, you have lost your mind. And you're, in my opinion, committing child abuse to let them tell you their agenda, they're not. And then to go along with it. I'm sorry. If you're born a man, I refuse to address you by a female pronoun because I'm not going to be dragged into your deception. No, I'm not going to lie because you say you feel something that's not true. Well, I can just hear the feedback from radio on this one. No feedback, blowback, but it's true. Come on, everybody. Can, I want to say sometimes America, you have lost your mind by putting feelings above truth. No, no, no. I could just, I could go off on a tear on that one and never return to these notes, but I've got to do the notes. But, but, but it, cause it drives me nuts every single day. It's like, what in the world has happened to this country? I'll tell you what's happened. We forsook the word of God and look what happened. Professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. Used to be, if you said something 
that you weren't, if you insisted you were somebody you weren't, they took you away. I'm Napoleon. I'm the president. I'm this and that. But, but isn't it just as extreme? Yeah. But no, now we celebrate that. And if you say it's wrong, you're a bigot. You're a phobe of some kind. No, I'm just grounded in common sense and rationality and truth. Amen. Now, here's the deal. We're almost done. Everybody say amen. <laughs> We're getting there. Now, Paul comes to the resurrection from the dead. If we died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, here's the huge truth. The fact that death has no more dominion over Christ Jesus is the cornerstone for Paul's argument that sin, sin has no more dominion over us. It can't make you do anything. If we're to enjoy victory over sin, we've got to fully embrace the victory of Jesus over the grave. In defeating sin, we are to appropriate the victory of Jesus over the grave. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. They're alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me ask you, do you believe Jesus got from the dead? Did he rise from the dead? All right. If, he, if you believe that, then you've got to believe with the same faith that you are no longer a slave of sin, that sin was crucified, that your sin nature was crucified with him and you're dead to sin. You don't have to obey it. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to reckon something. The word reckon is an accounting term, meaning to count, to take into account, to compute. Just like God considers something done, we also are to count it done, to reckon it to be a fact of life. So now we come to a therefore and we're almost done. Amen? Therefore, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being somebody who is alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So my mouth, my thoughts, my ears, my eyes, my feet, my hands are all dedicated to God. And they are instruments of righteousness as they used to be used as instruments of sin. Amen. In light of the positional fact that our old man was crucified with Christ and we have reckoned that to be a done deal, therefore do not allow the various members of your body to obey sin's promptings. So the three magnificent words of chapter six, let's say them together, are know, reckon, and yield. Once we know what God has done for us on the cross, we must reckon it to be true. Once we reckon it to be true, then we yield our bodies and lives to him as those who are alive from the dead. For sin shall not have dominion over you. 
for you are not under law, but under grace. Continued victory does not depend on self-effort, but on drawing from God's grace. Now, the slaves to righteousness, verses 15 to 23, I'm not going to expound on them. I'm just going to read through it quickly. The rest of the chapter, Paul focuses on the reality that everyone is a slave to something, either of sin to death or of righteousness to life. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Of course not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves a slave to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were, everybody say, I was a slave of sin, yet now you obeyed from the heart the doctrine we have studied tonight to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't wake up feeling bad that you were righteous the day before. You never had to worry about being righteous because we weren't living righteously, amen? But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed that you did them? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now he closes with the universal, undeniable truth of life. I want everybody to read it together. Verse 23, ready? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Watch, look at me carefully and I close with this. You wanna live a life of sin? Go ahead. Anybody watching say, you know, I'm just not ready to become a committed Christian and to come to Jesus and all that stuff. I, I'm not done with my party and hearty and living in the flesh. I'm not done. Good. Okay. Go ahead. But let me tell you what he just told us. Sin will hand you a paycheck. Are you, are you with me? The wages. That means a paycheck. Sin will hand you a paycheck. Every single time. And, and you know who signed the check? The devil. And you know the company you're working for? Hell Incorporated. And, and so go ahead and, and sin. But I guarantee you, when you sin, you're going to get a paycheck. And I'm going to get a paycheck. And what's the paycheck? Death. First spiritual death. And then eternal death. That's the paycheck. And you're going to get paid every time. And so am I. For whatever a man sows, that's, that's what he also will reap. So to the flesh, from the flesh, you reap destruction. So to the spirit, from the spirit, you reap everlasting life. But if you live unto God, you're going to get a paycheck. Okay? It's not your salvation because that was paid for by Jesus. But what's the paycheck? If you... 
live sowing to the spirit. Here's the paycheck. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen. I don't know about you, but I, I got real tired of hell's paychecks. Real tired. How many of you can agree? Let's stand together. It just occurred to me since Brendan's not here tonight, there's nobody to run the mic. So we'll take questions next time. All right. But how many of you are glad you came to church tonight and learned some things? Amen. Learned about the word of God. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you so much that you came to die for us. And then when you were on the cross, the old man of sin that was always prompting us to sin was crucified with Christ, was crucified. And now, Lord, we reckon it so. We count it done, just like you see it done. So that when sin comes knocking, some old habit, whatever, Lord, we know that we don't have to do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen. Amen. Well, there's nobody up there musically. You know, I'm kind of liking, just not forever, but for now, just one instrument up here, just leading us with a guitar or a piano. It's simple. And we have to sing because there's not a bunch of music to drown us out. Right? And so it helps people that aren't not usually singers to sing. Anyway. This Sunday, don't miss it. Bring somebody who needs Jesus. People are getting saved each and every week. And I'm going to be talking about abide one more time. Abiding in the vine. And it's going to bless you. Amen. Father, bless the people of God. Thank you for bringing us together, baptizing us into the body of Christ. Lord, we just thank you for our church family. Bless them in their going out. Bless them, Lord. And may your face shine upon every one of us this week to walk in victory and in power. In Jesus' name, amen.